And I'm going to invite you to open in your Bibles to a startling passage. Find Matthew 16, if you would, in your Bible or Pew Bible. Uh, the scripture as I read it will be up here, but after that, I'd really like for you to just follow along in your own Bible. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 21. This passage follows on the heels of what we studied last week. And I think as we read it, you'll see why I refer to it as a startling passage. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now let's pray together. Let's ask for God to illuminate his word to us, to help us to understand it. Father, thank you that we have your word and we can study it together and we can sit at your feet and hear from you and learn and grow and be changed. Lord, may your word now act as a a scalpel. Lord, do your work in our hearts now, please. Please help me to serve your people well. Please give us eyes that see and ears that hear, minds that comprehend, hearts that receive your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to look at this passage in, in four headings. Okay, to be super neat, there is alliteration, which is a super preachery thing to do. Um, but that's how I've divided this passage up. So we're going to look at the revelation, the rebuke, the response, and the root. Okay, maybe that'll help us remember what we learned today. But we're going to start looking at the revelation. The first words in the passage, do you see what they say in the first, in verse 21? Look in your Bibles and look at it. From that time. Whenever you see that phrase, from that time, it marks a change. Everything up to that time was one thing, and then from that time on is something else. So what time is he referring to? He's pointing back to verses 13 through 20 that we studied last week. So if you'll listen, I want to read what we studied last week so we'll fully understand why this passage is so startling, okay? Now we're going to back up, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So, imagine you're face-to-face with Jesus. Imagine you're Peter, okay? One of the disciples face-to-face in the presence of flesh and blood, Jesus. And he looks you in the eye and says, you get it. Now I know that you get it. You understand who I am. Because you've just told me that I am the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. I am, I am the son of the living God. And now I know you get it. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. The Father in heaven revealed this to you. Now that I know that you get it, I can tell you that I will build my church on this foundation. What we have right now, this understanding you have of me, I'm going to build my church on you. You will be the foundational part of my church and I will build it. And the gates of hell will not prevail over it. We are finally going to do this thing together. Me and you and these other disciples, we are going to go and charge the very gates of hell. I'm going to give you the power and authority to stand at the door of the kingdom of heaven. You will have the key to either grant people access in or deny them access because you will know the truth. Now, imagine you're there in that meeting. You hear that from Jesus, the Savior. You would probably be pretty charged up. It's almost like that, that speech in Braveheart where he's, you know, all the, the people painted blue-faced are there and he's riding back and forth on his horse. I know nobody watches movies but me, but you can visualize it. And he gives that speech. It's what it feels like. We're going to go. We're going to do it. But from that time, after that moment, that exciting, joyous moment, from that time, Jesus began to show something new to his disciples. From that time, things shift, and Jesus begins to show them something deeper than what he's ever showed them before. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. God's revelation to his people is progressive. He doesn't just dump everything on them at once. And here they come to another layer on the onion, another layer of his revelation. Here he's revealing that he's going to have to go and suffer and die and then be raised again. Now this is a a shocking change of pace from what he had just been saying. The disciples didn't see it coming. Peter didn't understand. And I think that we can sympathize. Now, we're going to move forward and we're going to look at exactly what he means by what he says. But I want to submit to you that perhaps this will be deeper revelation than you have yet received. Perhaps this will be a step deeper than what you're used to. People sit in church their whole lives and still at different rates come to grips with different depths of truth. So maybe today's the day that Jesus will begin to show you something new. I've been praying that we'd have ears to hear if he, if he does choose to do that. Uh, many of you can relate to that experience of, you know, you've been a Christian for however many years, and then at a certain stage, it changes gears, and he, he's teaching you more, or he's revealing deeper things to you. And you think, well, this is what Christianity is. Now I get it. And then he changes gears again, and he starts to reveal deeper things. Have you guys experienced that in your walk? I, I have. I was saved at eight years old. Okay, so I had an eight-year-old understanding of the gospel. 
all the way up until after high school. And then God used uh, the experience of all my friends leaving to go to four-year universities and me staying home, living with my parents and going to Central Piedmont. Two years with no friends, just solitude. He used that to shift gears again and teach me deeper things and started falling in love with his word. And then later he shifted gears again and he, he just basically crushed me down related to some of my own sin. And I really began to realize what it means to confess and repent and be freed of sin. And, and even now I feel like he's shifting gears again and he's teaching me what it means to rely on him in prayer. I always thought I got it. And now I'm realizing that I, I didn't get it as well as I thought. So this is how the Christian life works. So here he's shifting a major gear for Peter. And maybe a gear is shifting for you as well. So that's the revelation. He's going to have to go suffer, die, and be raised again. Now, the rebuke. And this is unbelievable. Look at verse 22. So he, he tells him this shocking new revelation that he's going to suffer and die and raise again. And Peter, in verse 22, And Peter took him aside, get over here, Jesus, and began to rebuke him. That's a forceful word. Rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now just take in the essential irony of that statement. Far be it from you, Lord. Lord means someone with absolute ownership rights. How can he tell the Lord, no, you're wrong. You will not do this thing. But that's what Peter does. Far be it from you, Lord. Now, I tend to snicker at Peter, but we do the same stuff. We do the same thing. It's just that Jesus isn't standing here in the flesh when we do it. We all say, no, Lord, I have my own plan. At least Peter's motivation was pretty noble. He wanted to protect his king. It was sort of a long live the king kind of moment. No, I won't let you die. I'll protect you. For us, it's usually a lot less noble than that. For us, it's usually, you know, we sing about him being God and sovereign and the Lord. But then when we leave, we say, no, I don't think I can really trust you. Like I was just saying I can, I'm going to trust myself. Or how many of us men know what the scripture says about how we are called to self-sacrificially serve our wives, our families. But in our daily living, we say, no, Lord. How many of us know that the number one commandment is to worship and love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? But with our heart, we say, no, Lord. I love these things more. So let's not judge Peter too harshly. Let's not be hypocritical. Let's look instead at Jesus' response. This is the most startling part of the passage. Look at the first part of verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, get behind me, Satan, calling you Satan? This is translated, get behind me, but if you look at the original language, it's sort of like what I used to yell at stray dogs who would come up into our yard. Get! Anybody, is that just like a Monroe thing? Everybody says, get! 
Okay, people are shaking their heads like you've never yelled at a stray dog. Seriously? Okay, well, that's what we would say to get the, the dog, the troublesome animal out of our yard. We say, get, get on. Man, I sound country in my own ears. That was a long time ago. That's basically what he's saying. Peter's trying to protect him. Peter's trying to exert his own plan, which seems better to him, a plan in which Jesus wouldn't have to suffer and die. And Jesus turns around and says, get it. Get away. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're a stumbling stone. See, Peter ignored what Jesus said in verse 21. Jesus began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must die. He must rise again. He must. This is the big idea. If, if I have bored you up to this point, focus now and I'll be happy. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential. Almost everything else we could do without. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. It's central. It's pivotal. It's everything. He must do these things. And anything that would stand in his way or tempt him otherwise is a satanic hindrance. Now, we are never going to be in Peter's position to stand in front of Jesus before his death and resurrection and try to stop him. But there are many ways in which we deny his death and resurrection or ignore his death and resurrection and try to build our own thing that has nothing to do with his death and resurrection, and it's equally evil. So it happens outside of the church. Have you seen the bumper stickers that say, coexist? And each letter is a a different symbol of a different religion. Now, I have no problem with coexistence in the term, in in the sense that I hope they don't kill me and I don't plan to go kill them. Like, we can live on the same planet. But all these different religions cannot be equally valid. They cannot coexist as equally true. They, They cannot. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is why. Now, some of you may... Want that to be true, that all the religions lead to the same salvation. That, you know, we're all, it's the, the thing about the elephant, you know, we're all blind people feeling different parts of the elephant. And one of them says it feels like an ear, and the other one says it feels like a tail, and the other one says it feels like a, I, I'm butchering this little proverb, but, but it's all the same animal. That would be nice, it seems nice, but it's just a lie straight from hell. It cannot be. If if these other ways are equally valid, why did Jesus have to die on the cross and rise again? You cannot believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and with any intellectual integrity believe these other religions can be valid. You cannot do it. Intellectually, it doesn't make any sense. If good works is sufficient to secure your Destiny to make you okay in the present life or after death, as Mormonism would teach. Why did he have to die a brutal death and rise again? If door-to-door telling people about Jehovah is what is necessary to secure your salvations, as as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, why did Jesus have to die a brutal death and rise again? 
We could go door to door and tell people about him without him having to have died. If offsetting bad karma and meditating and different avenues of better self-awareness as Oprah and her new age spiritual authors and guests would have us to believe, if that is valid, why did Jesus have to die a brutal death and rise again? If improving society, yoga and breathing, if eliminating desire as the Buddhists believe, if um, good deeds, if, if any of these other paths work, it makes no sense for Jesus to have died. Why would he have died if there was any other way? In fact, he prayed that there might be another way in the garden. Do you remember? The night before he was crucified, he said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But your will be done. The father would not have crushed his own son if there was another way. So, either you have to believe that Jesus is the only way, or you have to believe that all this stuff about Jesus is fictional or a mistake, but you can't, you can't do both. You can't believe that Jesus died brutally on the cross and that he really is who he claimed to be and believe that there's other ways to salvation. It makes no sense at all. He had to go do those things. There was no other way. Now, we, I don't think any of us in here would argue very strongly for that position that all, there are other ways, but within church, we have our own way of ignoring Christ's death and resurrection and trying to build our own thing that has nothing to do with it. There was a, uh, a sociologist, I don't remember his name, but he coined a term for what goes on in most churches. And it's not Christianity, it's not following Jesus, it's what he called moral therapeutic deism. Now, many preachers have used that term since he coined it because it captures it perfectly. A lot of what goes on under the guise of Christianity is moral therapeutic deism. Okay, so it's moral. It's about trying to be better morally. It's therapeutic. It's about trying to soothe ourselves. And it's deistic. It's in light of a vague God figure, but not specifically Jesus Christ. That's a lot of what goes on in church. That's a lot of what you'll hear in conversation. You know, God's been good. Well, which God? You can, you can subscribe to moral therapeutic deism without the cross. You can go through church and improve your morality, experience the, the soothing therapy of being around people who love you, and bask in the light of there being a God and miss Jesus Christ. And as some of you must be thinking, here he goes again. He's always preaching the gospel to us. We already know. I hope so. But I'm going to answer for you. So I have to keep it in front of you because it's so subtle and it's so easy to forget about Jesus and his death and resurrection and get all focused on other stuff. It's so easy to miss it. Peter was missing it. And he was looking Jesus in, in the eye. Now, if we do this, if we fall for the lie and we get sucked into moral therapeutic deism and we forget about Christ and his death and his resurrection, it short circuits everything. There is no forgiveness without the cross and the resurrection. So we're all still full of our shame and our guilt. 
There is no new life without the resurrection. So we're all still spiritually dead, spiritually inanimate objects. There is no relationship with the holy God if we have not been cleansed from our sins. So we're all still alone. It's all about the cross. It's all about the resurrection. So the question that we all need to wrestle with, but I'm going to say it to you, but I'm wrestling with it too. Does your life, does your Christianity, does your religion require the cross? Or is it something other than a Christian faith? Could you go about your life and your practice in church if the cross and resurrection never happened and and nothing would change? Because we can go through religious motions. We don't, we don't need to have been forgiven and given new life to go through religious motions. So I need you to think about that. Does your life, your religion require the cross? And if so, you're like Peter back in the other passage. The Father's revealed this to you. You get it. If not, you might be missing it. So that's why Jesus rebukes him so harshly. He has to go and suffer and die and be raised again. You know, it's not the first time that he said something like that. Get away, Satan. Remember in Matthew chapter 4 when he's in the wilderness and Satan comes and says, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, get away from me, Satan. So I wonder if he responds so strongly because he was a human and it was very tempting for him to circumvent the cross. He was experiencing real temptation Peter was a vessel of the evil one in that moment. So that's the rebuke. Finally, let's look at the root. Look at the end of verse 23. Well, let's read all of 23 so it makes sense. But he turned, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How did Peter get to this point where he's rebuking his Lord? How did he go from someone who had just identified him as Christ, the son of the living God, to rebuking him? How did he go from Jesus saying, the father is revealing things to you, to Jesus calling him Satan? How does he get from point A to point B? How does he get from being the rock upon which Jesus will build his church to being a stumbling stone, a hindrance? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's his mindset, his inner, the literal translation of the original language is his inner disposition or his inner perspective that, that leads to his outer actions and living. So there's something miscalibrated in Peter that's leading him to live wrongly, to think wrongly. Basically, there's two ways of thinking. There's the way that sets the mind on the things of God, and there's a way of setting the mind on the things of man. And they're different, and they're contradictory, and you can't be doing them both at the same time. Okay, the God way of thinking, the man way of thinking. Peter had fallen into the man way of thinking. So the second question for us to wrestle with, what is your mindset? Is it calibrated by God or is it calibrated by man? Is it informed by the Father or is it informed by Satan and the world that he's in control of? Is it focused on God or man? Is it, does it cause you to live according to the Spirit or does it cause you to live according to the flesh? 
Does it lead you to life and peace or does it lead you to death? Does it cause you to be submissive to God or hostile to God? Is your mind set on the things above or is your mind set on the things on earth? There's two separate ways of thinking. They are not the same. They contradict each other and you can't be thinking in both ways at the same time. We're doing one or the other. The bottom line is a mind set on the things of man pursues a course that does not require the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A mindset on the things of man puts us in league with Satan himself. It is no small thing. It's a serious thing. May we be people with minds set on the things of God, informed by the Father, focused on God, living according to the Spirit, enjoying life and peace, submitting to God with our eyes on eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, this startling word. Lord, I pray that it would seep in and that we would be men and women who have our minds set on the things of God. Please help us. Please convict us and correct us where our minds have been set on the things of man. And now as we prepare to baptize Garrett Haney, I pray that we all of our minds would be set on the things of God and that we wouldn't just see water, that we would see beyond that to the spiritual realities of what has taken place that we would see forgiveness of sin, that we would see new life. And please help us with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.